Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to have you back. Thankful to see you all. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Jonah this afternoon. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 774. So 774. And today's text is going to be chapters 1 and 2. So both of them. So it's essentially that entire page. You ever think you're faster than you really are? Maybe in sports growing up, you always thought you were the best until you finally met your match. Maybe in your car, you see the ETA that the GPS gives you and you pridefully say in your heart, I can beat that. Until you realize you've been foolish enough to be in a place like the DMV where the traffic is so bad and I might add, nobody knows how to drive. And there's literally no lane for you to actually drive in to make it on time. Maybe it's in your work or your schoolwork. You've procrastinated for so long. I know none of us have done that. You've got a deadline coming up. You're so confident you can get it done. And then that deadline comes at you fast. And despite fighting it, you finally come to terms with the fact you're just not going to make it. My three-year-old daughter, Joanna, will often ask me to play with her. And lately, one of her favorite things to do is what she calls race. Uh, I think she means chase, but we haven't really talked about that yet. But we take our turns and we go back and forth. She chases me, I chase her, she chases me. And listen, I love my little girl, but she's really not the fastest one out there. She thinks she is, so don't tell her I told you that. Uh, But when I chase her, I'm not joking. I I have to run so slow, I'm basically running in place. And uh, she's just having the grandest time running away and in circles, I might add. But she's running, and she isn't aware that there's absolutely no chance, no possibility that I don't catch up to her. And I can honestly say I'm about 100 for 100 in catching up to her. So uh, anyways, today, what we're going to read about today in Jonah is about one of God's prophets in Israel who took off running. As we do, we're going to see how Jonah, in thinking he can outrun God, gets immediately outrun by God himself. Something so foolish, yet in Jonah's eyes, was well worth it in an actual possibility. And just as I obviously am going to outrun my three-year-old daughter, God is going to obviously outrun Jonah and use him to accomplish his purposes. What we're going to do is we're going to find in these first two, two chapters essentially what we'd call like a big God theology. And what I mean by that is God is supremely sovereign, he's all-powerful, and he's infinitely in control. Now, some brief background info on Jonah himself. Jonah was a man from Gath-Hefer. It's a city in the district of Zebulun, just about three miles northeast of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Uh, so he's mentioned only one other time in the Old Testament. You'll find that in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, if you're curious. And there he's referred to as an Israelite, a northern Israelite prophet. And one of the biggest things to note about the book of Jonah is that the book of Jonah is primarily and ultimately a book about God, not Jonah. And friends, it's, it's likewise on that note important to point out that that's the case for every single book of the Bible. So, for example, Genesis, it's not just about how things started. It's about how God, the Creator, created everything and what His purposes are for mankind. Another example, Exodus, it's not just about how the Israelites escaped Egypt. 
It's about how we can know God and his deliverance. Proverbs, it's not just a collection of wise sayings. It's about God's general revelation to all of humanity as those inescapably made in his image. And it goes on and on and on. Even with books with people's names on them, like Jonah today, also Timothy, Jeremiah, Matthew, they're all about the revelation of the Lord God and his faithfulness and care for his people. So having set the stage a little bit for the book of Jonah, let's go ahead and read our passage for today. I'm going to start out in Jonah chapter 1 now, and then we'll get to chapter 2 a little bit later, all right? So chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and read. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So I've got two points for us today in relation to our passage. Two things this text tells us about God and his orientation to us. So number one is God directs our steps. It's chapter one. God directs our steps. And number two, like I said, we'll get to it a little bit later. God delivers our souls. It's chapter two. So God directs our steps. God delivers our, so, our souls. 
And so as we start out in chapter one then, what chapter one gives us here is essentially Jonah's origin story. Like we see in comic books about, uh, uh, or movies about various heroes. We have some characters like Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or, or uh, you know, finally finding their abilities or Luke Skywalker becoming a Jedi. Jonah is found here rebelling against the living God and foolishly thinking he can escape him. I mean, what a way to start things out, right? We see in verses one and two that God calls out to this prophet Jonah and says, arise, basically, go to the great and evil city of Nineveh and call them out on their sin, call them to repentance. And keep in mind, this is Nineveh. And so it was the metropolis city of the great Assyrian enemy, the enemy to Jonah and his people. And it was larger, or, or I was wider in breadth than even major cities like Chicago or London. It could hold its own with any of them. The last place this Israelite prophet, Jonah, wanted to go was to the wicked city of Nineveh, which had sinned against God in their lawlessness and idolatry with what's called a high hand. And what that means at the end of verse 2 is essentially when he says their evil has come up before me, it was so significant, so vile, so proud and unrestrained that it's piled high before God. So much so that God's prophet needed to make a trek over there in person to call them out on it and call them to repentance. And yet, how does Jonah respond? Look at verse 3. He has none of it. This guy gets up and heads for the hills. Like he's heard a bomb go off, he hears the voice of God and makes a run for it. And where does Jonah go? He, he heads for a place called Tarshish instead, which, which some people believe might be the same as the city of Tarsus, which is where the Apostle Paul was from. Uh, others place it actually in southern Spain. But regardless, the thing is, is it's the complete opposite direction of where God is calling him to. God is ordering Jonah east. Jonah heads west. That may sound familiar to some of us Today, have you ever been in a situation perhaps where the Lord is clearly calling you to do one thing, but instead you choose to totally disregard Him? And let me be clear, maybe not, maybe not necessarily audibly, but from what He's told you in His Word, from what He's told you through others, through fellow brothers and sisters, your own church members, what is right and what is wrong. What you ought to do and what you ought to not to do, and you suppress it, and you ignore it, and you run the other direction, and you do your own thing. Perhaps it's to maybe give up the comforts you have and sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, maybe even go to a foreign land as a missionary, but you just can't bring yourself to actually consider it. Perhaps it's to not take that second or extra look, click on that link, but you do it anyway. Maybe it's to finally talk to your neighbor who you've lived around for quite a while, or or to maybe actually put your phone down, pay attention to your children, or to maybe faithfully work remotely instead of fake working while you jiggle the mouse. Some of you know what I'm talking about. In any case, we find in God's Word that He calls us to holiness and to obedience, Yet too often we take off running towards worldliness and defiance. Brothers and sisters, we are a stiff-necked people, as was Jonah. So he climbs aboard this ship. 
headed for Tarshish, thinking he's safe, which side note, by the way, how many of us often think we're okay in our sin when obviously, or, or we, and we think obviously we're going to live to see another day. But here it comes, verse 4, says the Lord hurled a great wind and storm upon the sea to the point where the ship was about to snap in half. So friends, the next time you're, you, you're foolish enough to think you might be safe in your sin, I want you to picture that very moment, you coming face to face with the judgment of God. Not after the fact, not, not once you finally decide, okay, I think I'll repent now. No, right in the middle of it. Because that's what's happening to Jonah here. He knows very well what God has called him to. He disregards him, and he's immediately confronted by the living God. And then what happens in verse 5 and 6, if you look right there, is that the crew on board begins to freak out, and they begin to call out to their gods for salvation. So two quick comments on this. Number one, it's, it's potentially easy to scoff at these men for doing something that seems foolish. But how often do we do the exact same thing? We may not cry out to Baal or Moloch or Zeus, but when challenging circumstances strike, where do we run to? I'm in financial trouble. I need a new job. I've got to get a promotion. Or maybe good thing I've got enough reserves and retirement saved up. Or I'm having health issues. I need medication. I need to get scanned. I'll do whatever it takes to feel better. Better yet, I'm entitled to good health. In any case, your back is up against the wall. And again, while not all of these things are necessarily bad or evil in and of themselves, what happens is you find yourself turning to and crying out to anything and everything else before you approach the one true God who can actually save you and help you. My second comment here is that the crew is all of a sudden remarkably aware of their frailty, exceptionally cognizant that they actually don't have self-determining autonomous power over the events and steps of their lives. God does. This is why, the people, uh, this is why people in general uh, uh, tend to hate flying, for example, for the most part. It's because if something goes wrong in that plane and it starts to go down, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And simply being in a tin can 36,000 feet in the air suddenly makes us very much aware of that, even though it's been the reality all along, even though it's the reality right here, right now in our seats, we could come face to face with death in an instant. So if you're sitting here today, perhaps you're, you think yourself indestructible at the age of 18 or 25, maybe you're older than that, think again, because you could come suddenly face to face with death and God's judgment in an instant. And so here they are, here these men are, it's not working. Their gods don't speak, their gods aren't real, and maybe they turn to the living God now, right? No, they say, fine, we'll handle it. They've tried their gods to no avail. Now it was time for them to give it a shot themselves, and so they begin throwing things overboard. And what does Jonah do? He hides again. He goes down to the bottom of the ship to take a nap. I mean, who is this guy at this point? On this, the, the Puritan theologian Matthew Henry wrote that neither the noise without or the sense of guilt within awoke him. He goes on, sin is of a stupefying nature, and we are concerned to take heed lest at any time our hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is the policy of Satan 
when by his temptations he has drawn men from God and their duty to rock them asleep in carnal security that they may not be sensible of their misery and danger. It concerns us all, therefore, to watch carefully. So Jonah remains cowardly. He's asleep when now the captain of the ship in verse 6 now goes down. And at this point, the captain is trying anything. And so he urges Jonah to give it a try and cry out to his God for saving. Might as well roll the dice on Yahweh at this point. So we're through plan A, plan B. At this point, we're halfway down the list for hope for survival. What now? They cast lots. And what is it that Proverbs says? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And sure enough, it lands on Jonah. Indeed, rock, paper, scissors here has outed Jonah. And after they question him in verse 8, Jonah gives in and declares he's a follower of the one true God, of Yahweh, he says, the God of heaven who made, he's the one who made the sea and the dry land in the first place. And so the men in, in, in verses 10 and 11, they look for a solution before Jonah tells them in verse 12 that this, the solution to their problem right now in the middle of this storm is to just throw him overboard. And isn't it amazing that Jonah wanted so badly, friends, to flee the presence of the Lord that he was willing to die in order to do so. The men then just uh, one more time try to escape the storm on their own before they finally call out to God which is what we see there in verse 14. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they proceed to throw Jonah overboard and the storm finally ceases. What's going on here? I mean, we see everything taking place in front of us from Jonah running to the storm coming and Jonah getting thrown into the sea. Probably just about all of us uh, who have been Christians for at least a little bit of time, even for those of us who are not Christians, have heard this story several times, maybe seen several children's movies on it as well. But is this just a popular story? You ever met someone who has a really unpopular opinion and you can't stand them for it? Maybe something like LeBron is better than, greater than Jordan or that Dunkin' Donuts coffee actually tastes good. Sorry if I just took a shot at you. Uh, Here's one of my personal unpopular opinions, which can get you stoned in some circles for some reason. Um, Lord of the Rings isn't that great. Which I know is incredibly offensive to some of you, but despite the dogmatic narrative that it's some kind of transcendent, supernatural work of art right up there next to the Bible. I just don't see it. It's genuinely, I've made a concerted effort several times to try and watch the movies, and I've fallen asleep literally every single time. All of that is to say, I was going to give you a Lord of the Rings illustration today, but because it's not that great, we're going to go with Star Wars, which uh, uh, I know some of you would have me church disciplined, but in the spirit of Matthew 18, come and talk to me individually after service first. Uh, so Star Wars initially released in 1977, set filmmaking and culture on a, all, a totally new trajectory. Some of the most cutting-edge effects you could ever imagine at the time, there was really nothing quite like it. Uh, it was so successful, they came out with a sequel, which was The Empire Strikes Back, before completing the trilogy shortly after. So you got Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, right? And that's where you go, no, 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 no. 
Because what we quickly learn is that it's not so much Star Wars 1, 2, and 3 as it is Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. And that's because there were prequels to be made. There were movies to be made that tell the story about what came before. And then when the prequels were finally made and released, what you had was you had to do, you had to watch the prequels in light of the sequels, in light of what came after. So for example, you knew that from watching the prequels that Anakin Skywalker was going to turn to the dark side before becoming Darth Vader. Sorry if that's a spoiler word. You've had 20 years to watch it. Uh, There's no escaping it though. You could enjoy the prequels. You could pay close attention to it. Anakin could be your favorite character. You could root super hard for him. But at the end, you know what's going to happen. You had to watch the prequels in light of the sequels. And friends, that's the moral of our text today in the story of Jonah. Jonah is our prequel, so to speak. You see, the, the, the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah is undoubtedly a Christian story. And so as we read and consider the Christian uh, book of Jonah, this side of Christ, we must read and consider it in light of Christ. A perfect illustration is, was our scripture reading today that, that, that Hani read in Matthew chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there with me, if you will. Matthew chapter, eight, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 42. Let's go ahead and take another look. I'm actually just not, I don't have the time to read it straight through, but do take a look at it. Time fails me. Uh, but the thing is, is as we better understand what Matthew is saying about here, in, in, or what Jesus is saying in Matthew, what we're able to do is better understand how we're supposed to approach Jonah. So if I were to exposit this passage in Matthew at super speed and give you the main point as clear and succinct as possible, it's this. Write this down. The truth is available. You must seek it, and you must accept it. The truth is available, you must seek it, and you must accept it. The truth is available, that's where Jesus says in verses 41 and 42, if you have it there, says something greater than Jonah, something greater than Solomon, a prophet and a king, is here. And that's himself, of course. You must seek it, as the people of Nineveh and as the Queen of the South did, And you must accept it. You must accept the greater truth in the form of the Son of Man dying and on the third day resurrecting. The truth is available. You must seek it. And you must accept it. Again, this is the lens we must read the book of Jonah through. So as we see Jonah get thrown overboard and as we see the great storm come to an end as a result, I think there's three very important things we're supposed to take from this passage, this side of Christ. And these aren't so much uh, sub-points as they are just three critical theological takeaways, okay? So the first is that if you remember, Jesus himself calmed a storm. If you're still in Matthew, go ahead and flip back a few pages to Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. Here we see Jesus' first nature miracle in the book in Matthew. I'm going to go ahead and read it. It says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, 
O oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So here we have Matthew commenting on the story of Jonah, or Jesus commenting on the story of Jonah. And exhibit A, Jesus himself calms the great storm at sea. He puts an end to it himself. All right, so that's takeaway number one. The second takeaway here from chapter one of Jonah is simply that it's become quite evident that we need a prophet who does not run. We need a prophet who obeys God in all that he does, who never shrinks back from what the living God has called him to. And finally, the third takeaway, what's more than this, is that chapter one of Jonah, what it does is it begins to carve out a category for propitiation to satisfy God's judgment. That is a type of atonement or substitute. So if we bring everything together now, in Matthew 12, Jesus quotes the story of Jonah and explains how it points to him. And essentially what he does here is he says, the truth is available, it's here, it's fully accessible, but you must seek it and you must accept it. And what is this truth? Well, it's Jesus. And how do we know? Exhibit A, Jonah chapter 1. Jesus himself is capable to calm the storm. Jesus himself holds the power over everything in this world. Exhibit A. And then exhibit B is, we need a better prophet who does not run from God, but instead obeys God in all that he does. In exhibit C, we see that it's possible to satisfy God's righteous judgment and bring peace if a propitiation or a substitute is made in place of guilty sinners who disobey and run from God. You see, Jonah's foolishness and thinking he could outrun God is very similar, remarkably similar to our foolishness in thinking we can do the same, friends. And likewise, in thinking we can outrun our sin or the consequences of our sin. Because, friends, when we talk origin stories, okay, we're not talking about Spider-Man discovering his powers. We're not talking about Luke Skywalker becoming a Jedi. You want a Lord of the Rings illustration? Friends, we're orcs. All right? We are, which, if you're not familiar, orcs are humanoid monsters that come up from the mud. We're conceived and born in sin in our natural state. All we do is think of ourselves. All we do is serve ourselves and worship ourselves and our idols and our gods rather than serve the one true God. And as a result, we're greedy for gain, we're hungry for sin. And we're therefore bound for judgment. None of us sin because we don't like it, friends. We sin because we enjoy sin. Because, you see, you and I, we can't outrun God. He directs everything, every step of yours. And just as no matter what Jonah tried to do to avert God's reach, that's like me standing here and like uh, trying to outjump the atmosphere. It's just not going to happen. So if you're here today, perhaps... You don't really know where you're at spiritually. Perhaps you've been skeptical of Christianity. Perhaps you've called yourself a Christian your whole life, but you know yourself deep down not to be so. You love this world more than you love Christ. Are you tired of running? Are you tired of avoiding the truth of God in your life and chasing after the things of this world that don't satisfy? 
Are you tired of running, running, running in circles, chasing the wind? Friends, visitors, this is why Jesus came. This is why he arrived on the scene as the greater king, the greater prophet, the one who could and would live a life in perfect obedience to the Father, a life that you and I haven't and can't and won't. We refuse to live. And what he did was he offered himself as that substitute. He offered himself as that propitiation in our place by dying the death that we deserve and taking on God's righteous judgment against all of our sin. That's what happened on the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. And then on the third day, which we'll see in a second, he rose from the grave to defeat death once and for all. And he calls on all people everywhere, you and I, every single person in this city, across this world, to turn from our sin, to stop running from him. And to turn to him in faith and place the whole of our trust and lives into his hands as the all-sufficient Savior for our souls. Amen? He came for you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel needs to go to dark places, the darkest of places. And I'm not just talking Nineveh. And I'm not just talking the ugliest places, the ugliest cities you could ever imagine on planet Earth. I'm talking about our hearts. We need the gospel, friends. We need to be saved from the judgment that is awaiting us because of our sin. Which in some form appears to be what's taking place here in verse 16. If you look back with me, Jonah chapter 1 verse 16, we see the crew turn to the one true God after throwing Jonah overboard and witnessing the calm of the storm. What they do is they say, uh, or the text says, if they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, we don't know exactly what this means. This doesn't necessarily tell us these people were converted per se. Uh, but remember, Jonah is a book about God. And what we're to gather from this is that his mercy is worthy to be praised. Just as we're doing here today, friends, we're praising, we're gathering to praise our merciful God. Okay, now back to Jonah himself, back to his placement in this story. God has a plan. Jonah runs from that plan. God outruns Jonah and has him thrown overboard, which brings us to verse 17, the end of chapter 1. It says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. So without a doubt, God has directed Jonah's steps. And God's plans will prevail. God will have his way. Even if it results in Jonah now finding himself in the belly of a great fish. Now obviously we could discuss and debate at length, you know, the the historicity or even the rationale for this particular event. Was Jonah having a vision? Was it a whale shark? Was it the Loch Ness Monster? Uh, We're not going to have time to go too far in depth on this, but just a couple of notes you might find helpful. Uh, Number one, the Bible, as well as Jesus, without a doubt, portray this account of Jonah as historically reliable. So if anyone says otherwise, they're not reading the Bible. So not a children's story, but an actual event which took place. So if Jesus and the biblical authors stake such a claim, we are called to do the same. So that's number one. Number two, on biblical authors, they're generally concerned very little 
with what one theologian calls the inner workings for exactly how this, that, and the other thing takes place. So some commentators even believe, for example, that uh, perhaps Jonah died and then was, was raised. Uh, regardless, the biblical authors are often not trying to display the mechanics or the scientific or, uh, or archaeological evidences for miracles. Which brings us to the third thing that would be helpful on miracles. This is very much a miracle. And throughout Scripture, miracles exist for revelatory purposes. So they're intended to teach us something about God and His purposes, which right here, of course, is a precursor to Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day. You see there in verse 17. And finally, number four, just if you believe in God, if you believe that He created everything out of nothing, that He rules over everything in the universe in his creation, and that Jesus himself died and rose again. Or in other words, if you're comfortable with injecting divine power into the equations of the laws of nature, then you can believe that this happened. Okay, so that is number one. God directs our steps, chapter one. God directs our steps just as he did Jonah. And now number two, God delivers our souls. Much briefer point, God delivers our souls. So Jonah is, a, is thrown overboard. And he sinks downward and downward and downward. Picture this, sinking downward and deeper into the ocean. As the water's surface becomes more and more distant, well, this coward, this this rebel, he's going to die here, right? Jonah gets what he deserves. Well, no, at God's initiation and direction, Jonah's swallowed up. And being swallowed up, likely expecting potential imminent death, he prays his prayer we find here in chapter 2. You'll notice it kind of reads like a psalm if you look at chapter 2. And the reason it kind of reads like a psalm is because it kind of is a psalm. I think of Psalm, chapter, or, or psalm 18, verse 6, where David writes, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then again, in Psalm 20, you don't have to turn there, but it says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. So Jonah here is at the brink, friends. He's, he's begun to taste the bitter fruit of his own rebellion in sin. And in probably what he thinks are his last gasps, he does the only thing he can do. He cries out to the Lord for help. And friends, what is your default Similar to what we talked about before, what is your default when the walls begin to close in on you? Is it to run from God? Is it to take things into your own hands? Or is it to cry out to God in prayer? Charles Spurgeon once said that you need fear no foe if you can but pray. And why or how? Well, Spurgeon also said that prayer is the slender nerve that moveth the muscle of the omnipotence. That's why. And that's why here at at New Covenant Baptist Church, we do our absolute best to not just talk about the power of prayer, but to truly live it out. That's why we have early morning prayer twice a week and congregational prayer meetings every single month, just as we're doing here today. That's why we pray at our members' meetings. That's why we pray at our community groups. That's why we pray in our discipleship meetups. That's why we prayed like 20 times today. Friends, if you're downtrodden and feeling hopeless today, 
My question for you is, do you pray? I think of Job 36, 13, where it says, the godless are the ones who do not pray. But you know what else Spurgeon said? He said, this is most pop- one of the most popular quotes, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Friends, Jonah has reached the end of himself here. End of himself here. My question is, have you? Have you found yourself in a position before, maybe now, where you just feel like you've got nothing left? Maybe you're not there yet. But in any case, if you came to the end of yourself, what would that look like? What would come to mind first? What or who would deliver you? Well, friends, listen here. One of the absolute sweetest mercies of our God is his bringing us to the end of ourselves that he might bring us into everlasting fellowship with him. And who knows what, might, what happens to Jonah particularly, but for our sake, Christ's mercy runs deeper than every trench of sin. And when we reach the end of ourselves, Christ meets us there. You see, God is able to hear us from anywhere and everywhere. There is no depth. There is no ocean. There is no valley or black hole too deep for our merciful God to hear our prayers and respond to them. And here in chapter 2, Jonah gets this, which is why he prays. And I'm just going to read it now if you look down at Jonah chapter 2. It says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in verse 10, what happens? It says, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So Jonah has been delivered. After three days and three nights, God has delivered his servant. I mentioned earlier how chapter one begins to carve out a category for a substitute to satisfy God's judgment. Well, here in chapter 2, we begin to see the idea of uh, death to life in three days. You see that? One of the most renowned commentators states that uh, three days and three three nights was a special phrase in the ancient world to denote, basically, it's long enough to be definitely dead. So again, Jonah Jonah did die, and then was he resurrected, some say? We don't know for sure. Uh, but just a few notes on this prayer. Again, not so much subpoints as theological takeaways. Uh, the, the structure of Jonah's prayer mirrors some of the simplest psalms available to us. And what I think that means is that I think we don't really need to exegete this psalm to exponential degrees to see its true meaning and value. Sometimes simpler is better. Uh, and so basically what Jonah is saying here is the first five and a half verses. He's saying, I was dead. 
I was deader than dead. There was no hope for me as this world collapsed in on me. You'll notice here kind of the suffocating language we have. In verse 3, look there, it says words like the deep and the heart of the seas, meaning the deepest, darkest part. It also says the flood surrounded me and the waters and the waves passed over me. Other translations use words like engulfed me or buried me. In verse 5, he says, the weeds were wrapped about my head. In other words, entangled or strangled him. Remember, Jonah is recounting what happened before he was swallowed up in verse 17. So all of this took place prior. So if you were to place the events that he's talking about, this is between verse 16 and 17 in chapter 1. He's recounting what happened in that little part. And then notice in verse 6, the depth of it all. So we've got the the suffocating nature of it all. And now notice the depth of it all. It says the bottom of the mountains and the bottom of the ocean, where he says imprisoned to death, essentially. Friends, church members, visitors, have you found yourself in a place like that before? At your lowest of lows, where you felt you couldn't even get out of bed anymore, perhaps? Perhaps you maybe thought it was over. Maybe for reasons totally outside of your control, maybe you didn't even know what was going on or why. Or maybe you were. Or maybe you are. Maybe right now you're entangled in sin and the things of this world that make enormous promises yet never deliver. A friend of our church put it this way. He said, sin always looks promising yet it always hides the price tag. Regardless, my friend, there is hope for you today. Remember, this isn't about Jonah. This is about God. This is about God and his mighty power to save, his mighty power to deliver you. Look at the end of verse 2. It says, you heard my voice. And yet again, at the end of verse 6, it says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O O Lord my God. And then after Jonah professes his thanksgiving in verse 7, 8, and 9, he finishes out in verse 9 saying, salvation belongs to our Lord, and that's when he is delivered to dry land in verse 10. So if you're here today, and you're at the end of your rope, perhaps you are burnt out from running from God. If you've been sinking deeper, and you've been sinking deeper and deeper, and you're tired of being let down by your sin in the ways of this world, There is mercy for you here today. God is able to reach into your darkest of circumstances because he's already immersed himself into the darkest of circumstances you could ever imagine by coming in the form of a man and emptying himself and taking on us the iniquity of us all, right? As he endured the sin and suffering and brokenness of this world as he took upon himself everything on the cross, It says, Richard Sibbs put it, he said, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Or as Jesus himself put it, friends, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you come to him today? Maybe for the first time, or maybe you need to repent. Because he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God delivers our souls. One common connection I have, again, with my, with my daughter is when I tell her I love her, she'll often say, how much? And which I'll reply, I'll say, so much. Sometimes I'll say, this much. Well, when God tells us in his word that he loves us and we ask, how much, Lord? All we have to do is turn our eyes upon the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross as he holds those arms open for all who would come to him, friends. In just a moment, we're going to sing our final hymn for today, which is titled, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And it's there. We can say, how deep, Lord? Well, it says, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, you and me, his treasure. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for your great mercy towards us. God, what a humbling yet glorious thought it is that we cannot outrun you. We, can't, we cannot outsin your mercy. For we know that you're able to direct our steps and deliver our souls, Lord. Give us the strength by your spirit to trust your promises that we might surrender our lives day by day to the lives you've called us to. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.